0: According to the view of the Austrian School of Economics, money is a spontaneous order, which is really linked in bottom up cooperation of people. The only thing for sure is that kind of rigged game with complex interventions doesn't make sense as a kind of spontaneous or it doesn't make sense that it will really be a measure for cooperation voluntary cooperation between people we need to experiment with new forms of money and other cooperation enabling technologies
1: Bitcoin is one of these new forms of money that could be a experiment or maybe even a working experiment
0: for sure I mean it's not even a prognosis that's just yeah. describing <laughs> what's going on so yeah of course <laughs>
1: Servus and greetings from Vienna. My name is Anita Posch. Thank you for listening to Bitcoin und Co., my podcast that's introducing the philosophy, ideas and people behind Bitcoin. Hello, girls and boys, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 65. My guest today is Rahim Tagisadegan. He's an Austrian economist and the author of many books. The recent one is called The Zero Interest Trap. If you have a question about the podcast or Bitcoin, feel free to visit the episode page at anita.link slash 65, where you will find the full transcript of our conversation as well as an audio recorder to record your question. Please hit the subscribe button in your podcast player now and feel free to subscribe to my newsletter at anita.link forward slash subscribe to receive updates about new episodes in your mailbox. Before we start, a word from my sponsors. I'm excited about my new sponsor, Shift Crypto, and their Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. I've known the team behind the Bitbox O2 for some time now, and I feel we share the same values. We both believe in financial independence, and that means holding your own keys. We also care about making it easy for everyone to keep their Bitcoin safe. The Bitbox O2 is a Swiss-made hardware wallet. It makes it simple to store and use your coins. I especially like the fact that they have a Bitcoin-only edition, and I can use it directly with my phone. Check out the BitBox O2 at shiftcrypto.ch. That's S-H-I-F-T-C-R-Y-P-T-O dot You'll get a 10% discount with the code ANITA if you buy at BitBox O2. LocalBitcoins is one of the most trusted and the largest peer-to-peer Bitcoin trading platforms in the world. On LocalBitcoins, you can buy and sell your Bitcoins in an easy, fast and secure way, always protected by escrow. Unlike stock-like exchanges, LocalBitcoins allows you to trade with people like you – And you can choose any currency you prefer and find a safe payment method to complete your trade. LocalBitcoins also offers a web wallet, so you can trade and deposit and send out your Bitcoins all in one account. Go to www.localbitcoins.com to buy and sell Bitcoin. Not your keys, not your coins is one of the basic rules in Bitcoin. Therefore, I definitely recommend using a hardware wallet, which is what most professional crypto experts use. For those who have difficulties with the technical requirements and constant maintenance of hardware wallets, there is the Card Wallet. The Card Wallet is a very simple and secure solution for long-term storage of Bitcoin and Ethereum. No software updates needed, it's 100% offline and it leaves no traces on the blockchain. You can give it away as a gift or inheritance. You can send Bitcoin to it and all you have to do is to store it in a safe place. The manufacturers are the Austrian State Printing House and Coinfinity, Austria's first Bitcoin broker founded in 2014. Order your card wallet at cardwallet.com forward slash Anita and get 20% off. And finally, a shout-out to the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, where you can find other Bitcoin-related podcasts like Citizen Bitcoin, the original Let's Talk Bitcoin show with Andreas M. Antonopoulos, POV Crypto and more. Today I have here with me Rahim Takisadegan. He's an Austrian economist economist book author and principal of the Scholarium, a learning enterprise based in Vienna in Austria. He studied physics, sociology and economy and is an expert on the Austrian School of Economics. His recent book is called The Zero Interest Trap. Hi, Rahim.
0: Hi, (laughs) Thanks again for having me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's the second time that I'm guest in the Scholarium offices in Vienna. Uh, The first interview we did together was in November 2018. And I'm tempted to say that back then we didn't think that we would come together again after a 10 or 12 weeks lockdown that has been lifted in Austria recently. Or did you expect something like that to happen?
0: Yeah, strangely enough, yes, I I did. Uh, because uh, right at the breakout of the pandemic, I was in Asia and actually in Singapore. Uh, so I was quite worried early on uh, because there's, I mean, a, a real modern risk in having this kind of pandemic dynamics uh, going on. And it was taken very seriously in Singapore. And I thought there were reasons to take that uh, seriously. And uh, then I... Realized and I was a bit surprised how little attention it was paid by media and politics. Uh, So then I thought, if in the beginning you tend to ignore something, I think later on you react by panics. So I think there was then a kind of overreaction uh, since then. So I a little bit expected it and I. uh, more than my usual amount of survivalism (laughs) and try to prepare as best as possible and uh, that was a good call.
1: What does this mean your survivalism? What do you do on a regular basis?
0: Yeah, just, no, I'm not. I'm not a survivalist. Not a uh, prepper. No, not a prepper <laughs> in that sense. I mean, uh, of course, more prepping than most people, but that's easy to do. But I don't think it, it makes sense that uh, in, from you'll fall back from a modern society to kind of shake in the woods lifestyle. So I'm not prepping for that. Uh, and I think having liquidity is one of the best preparations you can have. And But uh, prepping in a sense to be prepared for potential outcomes and dependencies you have as a a modern being and not going to the supermarket and everyone else is going to the supermarket and things like that.
1: Mm. And how did uh, the authorities in Singapore react to the virus? Uh,
0: I was positively surprised, I have to say. I'm not a big fan of politics in general. And uh, of course, Singapore is a bit... uh, paternalistic in the sense that i don't really like that much uh, but i thought i was surprised by observing as politicians how they argued how they really tried to explain what they were doing and uh, that was a big contrast to what i'm used to in austria and europe and the west in general so it seemed like they uh, you could take them serious i mean with all the uncertainty you have i i thought that It seemed like intelligent people really giving convincing arguments and being very transparent and open about the uncertainties as well. So it was a quite positive impression I got from Singaporean politicians.
1: And what were the measures that were taken there?
0: Tracing very early, testing very early and not much of a lockdown. So it was maybe surprising. Uh, So using really technology as the lever to keep track of what's going on and then selectively protecting facilities Uh, and in general of course they are much better prepared because they are so modern (laughs) they have so much technology their health sector is uh, i mean you can't really compare so all the processes are much better if i go in austria to a hospital which was already a high standard of course you have always spending a lot of time in closed rooms with lots of people and not being sure when will your turn be and things like that so it's really not efficient processes but there they have efficient processes so they had early on of course screening when you're entering gatherings of lots of people indoors you have those screenings Uh, and of course in Asia general you wear masks if you're very close to other people which you tend to be more frequently uh, than in Europe but generally that was observed and it was a lot of like just people observing it while Voluntarily and not much imposition so i didn't feel any force uh, or being forced to do something uh, of course there were inconveniences uh, then later on but it seemed more reasonable
1: so people there are much more used to wear masks mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yes okay yes. and what about privacy intrusions like uh, if you have everything digital your whole life and also mm-hmm. the tracking of the the tracing how is this handled there
0: Well, I think it's a trade-off, and most of us would like to have the convenience uh, of this kind of big data life, uh, but are not willing to bear the full cost. So I think it's a bit of hypocrisy in the West, uh, because, I mean, there's always a difference. Uh, Is it likely that your data will be abused and there I am not that distrustful of private companies where I have the choice to offer my data as a convenience. And of course, it makes life more convenient. And in Singapore's lifestyle is developed even more that it's just using an app, you can do lots of things, almost everything. And it's much more integrated and much more convenient to use than uh, in Vienna, where we're only getting started with Uber and a lot of obstacles, there legal obstacles and so on. But the smartphone-based, database kind of life is I think what most people voluntarily choose so I think it's hypocritical if you choose to share all the data that you have then just think you somehow need to be protected so I'm not at all a fan of regulation about data or the way politicians thought they could somehow handle the problem because they are the major problem so the real data leaks I'm worried about usually is uh, governments using data because they don't have an interest to serve you better they have an interest to classify you and that's where it gets dangerous but in Singapore I didn't have the impression that of course there's surveillance going on But I felt free, I have to say. It didn't feel like an authoritarian society where every step is traced in order to control you, but you are traced in order to serve you better, to have convenience. Uh, And it doesn't seem impossible to just opt out of that Mm -hmm. to a certain extent, of course.
1: So the basic is that we as people should be able to choose who we show which data.
0: Yes, but But of course data will be an important part of modern life. Uh,
1: Hmm. Okay, so you think that here in Europe maybe we panicked a little bit or the authorities, politicians panicked?
0: Not not only the authorities. I... I thing in general politicians in particular democratic politicians are just following trends. They are not really trendsetters. So I think there's a panicking going on in society and in the media. So then politics doesn't seem to have much of a choice. Uh, And we see that almost everywhere very similar policies were adopted. A bit of a difference in a few weeks early (laughs) or a few weeks late uh, and then in the details. But generally there was a panicking going on and people realized oh my god we are so unprepared uh, so you have a lot of private shutting down of processes changing processes fear breaking out uh, and then I think some uh, people in the media and in science when they realized that people tend to ignore a risk that may be real they overplayed it a bit so I think lethality rate fairly early on it was obvious that they are much lower than the high estimates that were Conveyed uh, by the media and even some scientists, uh, in particular those in epidemiology or modeling and so on. And I think that's uh, generally a very bad sign that a lot of people in media and in science, they think they have to somehow educate the population. And it's a kind of over- overreaching, because they turned out to be wrong. Almost every epidemiological model, and I've been following them closely, was wrong, and some incredibly wrong. So, I I did not like this. It was a kind of overreaction. Then, to really overplay the kind of uh, lethality rates, and so on, and use that to make people afraid, so that you then go through some kind of resistance you potentially have.
1: But, I mean, letting it loosely run, like the US Mm -hmm. or Brazil, for instance. I mean, that's the other side of the spectrum.
0: Yeah, but usually it's the wrong choice to go on black or white on the spectrum, of course. So I think it's something to be taken serious. And of course, there's some contrarians who think it's all a hoax. I don't buy that. I think it's a very... It's not even a black swan for me. It's like a kind of evident modern risk of this kind of pandemics. And we never know for sure in the beginning what lethality will be like, what the infection dynamics will be like. So I, I think in a certain sense, it's good to play safe. So I played safe myself and it made a lot of sense to try to protect. And we knew early on who to protect. So you protect the elderly, you protect those uh, with a bad immune system. And I didn't think that this contrarian approach of just going for herd immunity and just protecting the elderly in the sense of locking them down made a lot of sense. So I see how that also means that you take precautions even if you're young and if you have a good immune system, you try to bring down this infection dynamic. So I think that made sense in particular in the beginning when there's lots of uncertainty. But I think that's how most people reacted. I think most people due to this uncertainty and then realizing, okay, that it's really something uh, going on voluntarily they change the behavior and it's really it's not much of a big difference i think the difference is overestimated between for example sweden and austria i think that the difference is not that huge because most swedes voluntarily change their behavior as most austrians change their behavior and that we know for now was the biggest impact uh, because there's not so much difference i mean not, there's a difference, but the difference is not as huge as expected uh, in the outcome and the lethality rates, which, of course, right now we don't know for sure. Is Still, there may be a second wave and so on. Mm. But generally, I think there were some bad decisions made by politicians, but I wouldn't put too much blame because, as I said, I think they are following suit of societal trends. But I would put some blame on media-augmented scientists. So I think… They overplayed their hand and that's bad because it will destroy trust even more. And we really have a big trust issue in society. So now more and more people in particular in Austria and and Germany I'd say where it seems like we have the dynamic under control, everything seems fine, people are not afraid anymore, life has gone back to normal more or less. Uh, I think more and more people come to look at it as a kind of hoax played on them or hypocrisy and That's really bad because that affects trust uh, within society. So it's it's better not to overplay your hand, to be open about the uncertainties and then really put the focus on trying to understand what's going on and what's happening. And I've got the impression that politicians did not do that because they just kept with the same measures going without really having a deep interest in conveying what we know and how to put the focus on. I think most data that was published in the media was absolutely useless uh, because we know by now these R figure and so on. Those are useless abstractions. It's really about the concrete dynamics of infection happening and that makes a big difference if it's among What's the, the median age of the population that's infected first and where and how they are infected? That's the main difference and then is much more important than measures taken, much more important than what political regime you have at hand uh, and so on.
1: Yeah, and in the end, politicians lose their trust again, which was left, you know, because when they say in the first phase, no masks, then masks, now it's masks in the public transport, but not in a restaurant. Uh, I mean, I don't understand that, you know, I mean, that doesn't make sense. This is a Bitcoin podcast, so (laughs) let's circle back a little bit or move ahead to the economical effects the crisis has. I was talking with Tour de Mester a few weeks ago, and he thinks that the corona crisis is a great excuse for governments and economists to blame everything on the pandemic and that everything would have happened anyways, maybe not so fast. What's your opinion on that? Oh,
0: I totally agree, but that's no surprise. I (laughs) probably would agree to most things that Tour is saying. (laughs)
1: Okay, so I can also remember, or I reread it in our last interview, you said that the bubble is so big that it has to pop anytime. But we don't know when. Mm -hmm. Has this now gone faster? I mean, was this the big bubble that popped?
0: Well, the bubble is still there and getting bigger. Now, the question is always, what's the trigger? And that's what people are interested in, but I'm not that interested in because then you can't really predict. You always need a trigger usually to pop something because, and the trigger is just uncertainty arising unexpected things happening that's when you have drastic degree valuations on markets it's when suddenly some expectations change uh, and that's what most people look at but it's really hard to predict what's the precise trigger so it's much better to look at the systemic state uh, an economy is in and there we've already seen in 2019 there were i think three successive lowerings of interest rates uh, within the euro sphere, and that's of course is a sign that there was a correction potentially looming and central banks did everything as it has become the new normal to avoid any kind of uncertainty arising about the intervention of central banks so that's what they try to do so now everything it takes is the big mantra and that of course I think obviously creates an economic structure that's not sustainable and can't be sustainable in in the long run, but then it's the question: what triggers it? What triggers this downfall? This increase in uncertainty, and so I think uh, obviously, if it wasn't triggered by this pandemic, something else would have triggered it later on. Uh, even this oil price thing was not really directly related uh, to the pandemic could have been another demand shock then amplified by geopolitical considerations and so on so there will always be in a complex word something that triggers a reassessment of the future and then if central banks are not fast enough or are limited uh, uh, in their way, there's a kind of gap where you have this potential fear of a crash going on and potentially even a deflationary crash happening until inflation <laughs> takes up again. Okay. Lead.
1: So they are still pumping money into the system uh, on the one side creating it, like writing it in a ledger, on the other side with uh, new benefits and such. But who's profiting from that in the end, until now? I mean, as I see it, it's the wealthy. The money goes where the money is.
0: Sure, the holders of financial assets. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, the riots in the US with Black Lives Matter, I mean, that they come now is a sign also of this gap in between the society, right? Would you say so? Or?
0: Yeah, it's a symptom. I think, of course, those tensions in society and uh, a lot of people having... I mean, they experience this uh, kind of economic dynamic where there's more tension for them, it seems more and more difficult for people to live the American dream to take that example but it's not much different and in Europe. Uh, for Europe is like the, the bourgeois lifestyle of a European uh, it's quite similar I think having a car, having your apartment or house in the suburbs and so on and it seems further and further out of reach if you're not already a holder of those kind of assets or you inherited them uh, and so on and obviously that creates tension uh, but then this kind of mob violence uh, breaking out that's just something looking for a trigger and the trigger is quite arbitrary i'd say it's it's repeating what had happened uh, many times in the past i think the last time was 2011 with Trevor Martin and the George Zimmerman case and then before i think 1994 in LA, The Big Riots, about Rodney King. And it's really repeating the same script book. So it's a a kind of convergence within parts of society to perceive something as a trigger. Uh, And then you'll always have people either being willing to use that kind of mob violence and hide behind it, uh, because they just have a very, I'd say, high time preference and just making use of the chance to be part of a mob. And then you have some ideological instigators as well. So I don't take it serious as a sign of uh, that it's really about racism and it's a way to cope with or discuss or have a debate about racism. I don't buy that, yeah, definitely. to be honest. Yeah, definitely, not the mobs, no. Nope. No, even, I mean, even those around it who try to use that to make a case, I don't buy it. It becomes more and more ridiculous uh, because it's it's not the first time it happens. So it's like it's a rerun script, but it gets weirder and weirder every time. That's why I'm skeptical. I'm not buying it.
1: I don't understand now what you're not mm. buying. I mean, uh, the the... The thing that the police is misbehaving, not misbehaving, how do you say that in English? It's yeah, abusing, abusing of, its power.
0: Yeah, Yeah, but it's not... Um, no, I, I don't think it's a discussion about police violence. I, I don't see the case because then you would really look at the data and the problems. And I think there generally is a problem with violence, with police. And the main problem is there are too many interactions between regular citizens and the police because the police is used to police traffic and so on. But in the US, you have to bear in mind that the risk for the police is much higher than Europe. So it's quite easy to judge. And I think that's very misleading to think that like US police forces are inherently more violent. No, they have, for very bad reasons, too many interactions with the population. And the risk is higher, of course. People are armed in the US uh, to a higher degree, so that. And if you look in the data, it's much more risky to be a policeman in the US. And you would really have to look if it's really about like different uh, levels of violence for different populations, you would really have to look at the data. And if you do look at that, it's uh, paradoxical in a certain sense so i don't think it's really about it because there's very little interest in really like looking at the root cause it's very easy to talk about racism which i don't buy race is really the issue i mean apparently in the us about the color of your skin which doesn't make too much sense that's that would i would call lookism And sure, there is lookism. That's an intuition which is very hard to fight against. And it's bad for interactions. I think generally it's not a good idea to judge another person by his or her looks. But, and I think the US is not among the most racist places on the planet. I think it's among the least, the least lookist places in the sense that you are less judged by. What do you look like? Uh, because it's historically it was an open society. So if you compare it to Europe and then compare it to other places around the world, if you've really traveled and you've really been trying to understand how people live and how they perceive you, You'll be shocked how much lookism there is and how in Asia people talk about uh, non-Asians behind their backs and how it's really about looks and about our long noses and so on. And that's shocking in a sense. But I mean, you're only shocked if you really don't know that much (laughs) about people and the diversity of people. I think it's a general intuition. So it's not something that has to be explained. What's more interesting is how that can be reduced and it's interesting. Yeah. It's not that's it's there. It's obviously there. It's something that's easy to fall for and so on. So I think the, the whole thing is not about it. It's, it's triggered and it's a kind of media attention thing and ideological thing being triggered where people really wait for something like that and they're looking for it. And then, of course, the other side as well. And there's a lot of party politics playing into it, a lot of ideology playing into it and so on. So that's why I don't take it serious as a really kind of paying attention to issues that are there. And if you're paying attention to issues, then I think, yeah, you would look more into monetary policy. (laughs) So I agree and come back (laughs) to your point. Uh, Then you try to find out, okay, why are tensions increasing? Why are things like seem in some parts of our society not getting better as almost everything else is getting better? Why not that uh, kind of like classes and problems and challenges? And then I think the best explanation we have is the distortions by monetary policy
1: which is not stopping. I mean, they are doing it over and over again. And do you think that a thing like universal basic income has to come now? Because like, give the poor people also something? Because up until now, since 2008, only the financial system, the banks, the stocks, market, etc. was uh, funded in a way. What will be next? I mean, this can't go on forever.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, as a rationalization, to continue that kind of monetary policy, for sure, you need to get a buy-in of more people. And generally, politics is based on the illusion that everyone thinks he's kind of benefiting more from the whole system than everyone else. That was Bastia's big insight. So I don't even, I mean, basic income, if you look at it, I think it'll be a ploy. As helicopter money is in the US and it's basically a kind of universal basic income already happening. So you give some money (laughs) for which the relations don't hold anymore because it becomes absurd of those trillions and trillions. So you give some money (laughs) to everyone to keep them happy but it doesn't make a big difference because of course it's not about... uh, money (laughs) being distributed it's about purchasing power productivity and so on and that can't be controlled by politics politics cannot create wealth like that Uh, it can try to like redistribute in a way and keep the median voter happy with this illusion that on net he's benefiting from it but uh, yeah i that again i don't take too serious those kind of ideas that's just by distributing money once you've really I mean we've lost the relation between taxation on the one side and government spending so it's really just you produce uh, fancy numbers and you hand them out uh, to the population and it may seem fairer if you hand it out to everyone but then of course it's always the question in markets how and who is anticipating that and who is anticipating what happens after that and the more you have new schemes for a kind of money distribution, the more complicated it gets. So my uh, prediction is, with universal, universal basic income, like all central banks and 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 uh, political regimes go for that, you will have. Uh, reverse uh, regression in distribution. So I think the holders of financial assets and of those the minority who are really good at anticipating central bank policy will be even better off than they are today. So that's the kind of paradox of those monetary interventions. It's always... Those are benefiting that are best at anticipating and then, of course, having the assets already that make them able to benefit and in, in a sense really benefit from the knowledge and the capacity to anticipate this kind of central bank policy.
1: Mm-hmm. What does the Austrian School of Economics say here? I mean, is there a way we could do it better? Is there a better money for a new kind of financial system that could be more fair to everybody
0: according to the view of the Austrian school of economics money is a spontaneous order which is really linked in bottom-up cooperation of people and uh, so that's like not a clear-cut answer because every kind of spontaneous order is a process which you can't really anticipate in the beginning how it ends up is a kind of convergence but the important thing is the link to real cooperation between real people uh and that, of course, is complex in a modern society. So I think it'll be quite hard to figure out what could enhance cooperation between people in the kind, because it depends a lot on with what kind of people and what circumstances you would want to cooperate. But the only thing for sure is that kind of rigged game with complex interventions doesn't make sense as a kind of spontaneous or it doesn't make sense that it really be a measure for cooperation voluntary cooperation between people so the more and more you continue playing that game the less and less what's the dominant form of money will be a functional and useful form of money for most of the population so if a smaller minority will take advantage uh, of this distorted field so In a sense, we need to experiment with new forms of money and other cooperation enabling technologies.
1: Bitcoin is one of these new forms of money that could be an experiment or maybe even a working experiment.
0: For sure. I mean, it's not even a prognosis that's just describing (laughs) what's going on. So, yeah, of course.
1: In our last interview, you said something about that cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin is interesting if it can be a counter-cyclical asset. Uh, that's not correlated with classical financial assets. What has happened in the meantime?
0: Oh, the correlation has gone up now and it has been going up. So that would look like a bad sign, but no. (laughs) It's not (laughs) a bad sign. It's really complicated. uh, Now, once this kind of central bank policy, where it's really no matter what we do, what we do, and we have no limits anymore, then of course, what does correlation mean? It means if money is produced like that prices of assets rise so would it be a good sign that within these circumstances your asset is not rising in prices in euro or dollar if euros and dollars are produced like crazy then of course i mean you can't help but be correlated and that's the whole problem that's of course why more and more assets are correlated and for the investor of course you want to be first in an still uncorrelated asset you want to be early in and the more correlated, it means the more the rising prices have already bought in, the acceptance of more and more investors that it may be an asset that uh, helps you to preserve some purchasing power. So I'm ambiguous. I think it's a good sign of more mainstream adoption, the increasing correlation. Yeah. In the long run, it may be a bad sign. We don't know because a correlated asset also means it's some high risk speculative asset. For more and more people, then the only reason they go in is because they expect prices to rise. Uh, And that's not a very interesting (laughs) case of investment, uh, I'd say. And then you have the cyclical features, and that, of course, is always frustrating. I mean, a kind of cyclical is normal. Stability would be unnatural. But those kind of extorted, distorted cycles, that what you want to get away uh, from. In particular, if it's about investing in the long term. yeah, This kind of volatility, which we have accepted to be normal on the market, is just crazy for most people. Uh, and if it's crazy for most people, it means they are shut out of financial markets. And we see that, I mean, Austria still is a minority that goes for a stock exchange, even though it's the most conservative asset out there that still helps you uh, prevent the loss of purchasing power. Uh, So most people go for uh, the bad way of keeping the money in the bank account, which of course means they are losing purchasing power an amount that they are not aware of. And that's really bad. And I'm really feeling bad for those people. Uh, So that's a general problem. And of course, uh, in a world like that, it's very hard to have (laughs) just good news. It's all complex and we don't know and people are different. So yes, even though correlation it's going up i would not see it as necessarily bad sign because i think within these circumstances it's very unlikely not to be correlated and then it may just mean that you're fighting the Fed, which doesn't make too much sense that i mean if you're really fighting it in, in terms of speculating that they'll stop producing that kind of fiat currencies it's not that likely. <laughs> so I, I'd be very. So it's really hard to misunderstand the issue of correlation. So for a long time, I've said, and it was last time as well, yes, you are, as an investor, you're looking for uncorrelated assets. But if they correlate doesn't mean you drop them, no, that's another question uh, then again. And correlation may just be a sign of mainstream adoption. And that, of course, is good for you if you're already an investor. If you're not an investor yet, Take precaution in the sense that you have to ask yourself, am I only buying it because prices rise and I'm looking for another correlated asset Uh, or do I see really a future use case that may be even contrarian in a sense that if I think that this kind of monetary policy is unsustainable in the long run, what will come then? And may Bitcoin somehow be part of an alternative? So that's another, I think, the more sophisticated investment case for Bitcoin. And but yeah, that you have to bear in mind why am I investing in it uh, mm-hmm. other than just holding on to it? Mm.
1: What do you think about other cryptocurrencies? I mean, there are like three thousand mm-hmm. other coins. Yeah. What do you think about those?
0: I love experiments. I think it's great uh, that we have thousands and thousands of them. I think that's important. Uh, I think usually you need to be realistic that for something new to emerge, there are thousands of experiments and almost all of them fail in the end. So I think obviously... There is little value in most projects, but the value is in having this kind of experimental landscape is that you just, you don't argue forever about something. It's fairly easy in the crypto space to just fork or do your own thing, do your own project. And I think that's great. I think it's a sign of innovation, innovative cycles. It doesn't mean that I'm a, that I see a lot of value. And But I think it's very important part of it I have those frustrations as well to realize, well, we've got an infrastructure, but it's not really used for useful things. Why is that the case? And then you learn more about it, the whole sphere of the digital apps, smart contracts, and so on. It's frustrating in a sense. It looks like such a promising infrastructure technology, and there's so little practical use really out there. So that's you learn. Uh, and I think that's great, and I think it's really great that those projects are out there, and and uh, people are pursuing them, even though it doesn't always seem to be the best investment case. So you also lose nominal value a lot of times you have a lot of volatility but uh, in the sense if you are interested in the technology you don't care too much uh, about that
1: Now you said the word experiment there was the Virgil experiment in the 1930s in Austria in the Tyrol where the community tried to boost the local economy through stamp script local money and it worked I mean In this one year, up until it was forbidden, of course, by the Austrian National Bank or by the Austrian government, it worked very well. What do you think of regional cryptocurrencies? Can they work? And why would I need them when there is Bitcoin?
0: Ah, yeah, that's a good question. Now, Uh, First, I need to go back to Virgil. I think it's great that this community tried this experiment. Uh, I think it has not been correctly assessed. Uh, uh, I think it worked in a certain sense. It increased uh, local identity at a time in history where that was really important, where there was a lot of uncertainty. And people learned that their neighbors are not that bad and there's still a case for cooperation, even if you have that kind of uncertainty going on. Uh, So it was a kind of ledger, even where you trade with your neighbors, basically. And that I think is a good thing, but it cannot replace a modern order of economics. So it's by no, absolutely impossible, I think, that you have anything approaching modern wealth. And most people are not aware how much they depend on this kind of extended order they are really part of. So what happened in Virgil was not the kind of miracle. It was a bit of a miracle in lifting the mood. That was maybe a miracle, but it's not really a miracle. It's like people realizing, okay, we can do something about our situation. Let's hang in together. And that was really, I think, a major impact of the thing. And there was a great impact uh, on it. And people traveled to Virgil and it was really great for the population that there was international interest for what they were doing and really lifted the spirits. And maybe that's the most important thing, to lift the spirits. But on the economic side, if you look at what really happened and what they built, it was misallocation of capital. Of course, (laughs) I mean what they did is they renovated the the mayor's office and they built a skiing slope for jumping. Yeah, at a time when no tourism (laughs) was coming, so it was really misallocation. It was like there was no value creation out of that. And you could also see, I am pretty confident that if the central bank would not have been as stupid as it was as always to forbid it. It would have failed by its own, on its own just for a reason that the, the, the speed increased so much that people tried to pass it on as soon as possible. And the main reason it got working is because they use tax credits. So it's kind of people owe taxes to the administration, but they don't have the liquidity. So you use that kind, this kind of debt titles and taxes to be paid and make them liquid. So that's the major economic innovation, maybe there, but it's not really economic, of course, because taxes is not this large of a part of value creation. But there was something, so people were supposed to pay those taxes, and uh, so they could pass on this tax debt within uh, each other, and if you make the transferable, yeah. There's some case to be made that that makes sense, but not the whole Gesellian idea. You don't need that. You don't need the script stamp script mm-hmm. part of it. You don't need that. That was, I think, it's an economic uh, illusion or error happening there. That you really need to make make people pass it on faster than they would. Okay, uh, so
1: the velocity of money yes, thing yes. was was not was a misconception. Yes, because that was also one a question I I would have had like the it's called the mirage. Mm -hmm. the the Mm -hmm. loss the depreciation of money yeah (laughs) yeah. and i i always thought to myself maybe bitcoin would need that so that people also spend it and that there will be a circle and economy Mm -hmm. in the bitcoin space Mm -hmm. and not only everybody using it as a store Mm -hmm. of value
0: now every story that goes the way people should and one should (laughs) it's usually a sign that it's not really i mean offering people real choices for what they want to do so it's always better to understand why are they holding on to it what's the reason for that are they really stupid okay then I try to educate them first but not assume that I know everything about those people they have, may have very legitimate reason yeah, <laughs> to yeah. hold on to something for a longer time than you think is efficient or makes sense and so on
1: you're so right <laughs> I would also like to touch a book I'm reading at the moment. It's called Sacred Economics by Charles Eisenstein. And of course, you know it. I should have known that you know it. And I mean, would you also say that uh, one of the reasons for this crisis at the moment, the financial problems we have, that this is also a reason why, as I understand it, he says that the growth is just limited. Earth has run out of resources and the system we have, uh, which creates money out of debt. So you have to work more, 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 produce more and more and more and commodify basically everything and that we've run into an end now and so we need a new kind of money or a new kind mm. of financial system.
0: Yeah. I, I think it's wrong, uh, but it's partly right. Uh, it's in the sense right that uh, growth does not match the voluntary preferences of the population. So in a certain sense, you have too much growth. I don't think it's real qualitative growth that I would take serious as an Austrian economist, because we have a totally different perception of wealth and growth and so on. Uh, It's much more subjectivist, much more personal and not so much about building stuff that no one really uses or cares about. So in that sense, yes, there's this kind of growth dynamic which overextends the capacity to really support it and in an ecological sense. Yes, there's some case to be made, Uh, but more profoundly because the preferences of the population are not aligned with the because I mean you see ecology is also a phenomenon of wealth that you really care about your natural surroundings it's not I mean something universal (laughs) so then of course you observe that uh, in usually wealthy western countries that people really start caring about uh, this kind of surroundings and want to make the trade-off in a different way and if they can't do that they feel a kind of tension like they are forced by the dynamic uh, of economics. But I don't think the problem in the West is too much dynamics. In It's a kind of wrong growth in wrong aspects. And you see that all around, like surroundings seeming to become more ugly Uglier, and and so, in the sense, that if you contrast that to the nature and the bounty and plenty of nature's kind of homogenization of your surroundings, uh, if you really long for that because you're missing it, uh, I don't think it's an ecological issue, not for you. Uh, apparently, then you really want to have more roads and, and more buildings because you need them and you don't want to live uh, in the woods as your ancestors. Uh, but uh, I think, obviously, the growth is not in accordance with our preferences, and that's the main reason. Other than that, I think the real resources are unlimited, because it's not about, and that's, again, it's the view of Austrian economics. It's not really about the material things too much. Economics is more a spiritual endeavor, and once you have... Some are basic needs matched. It's not obviously always more of the same that makes you happy. And even in a certain way, it's sometimes to simplify that makes you happier and better off uh, and so on. So this kind of subjective personal thing, which is much more complicated than just increasing your stuff. Because in particular, if you see the trade-offs of all that stuff, if you don't see the trade-offs, of course, better to have more than less. But if you really have the trade-offs there... Then I think you wouldn't see that. So in a sense, it's true that it's the monetary uh, policy and order we have that's at the basis of a wrong kind of growth, a quantitative growth, uh, which is not in accordance with the preferences of most people on the planet already. Because we not only have the distortion in the West, we have, I think, even worse distortions in China and going growing out from there in, in large parts of Asia. And it's the same kind of logic. I think even a little bit more extreme already, this kind of depth uh Finance growth, which is not in accordance with the preference of the population. There's really redistribution going on, uh, making people worse off uh, and taking advantage of them not really understanding and being incapable of fleeing uh, your kind of interventions and preparing for those interventions. That's really what's happening. So I don't think it's about the limitation of the planet because it's not necessarily by growing. It doesn't mean that you consume everything. Growing means you make better and better use of nature and that of course there's no limit i think there's always room for improvement that's fundamentally human to go for that potential and increase it Mm.
1: so you're pessimistic and optimistic at the same time yes yes
0: usually those are my kind of answers (laughs) (laughs) okay but more importantly, optimistic. Yeah, it's more important, but long term focus and belief and kind of human potential for betterment. Yes, sure. But very realistic and down to earth about current structures, processes, even about the human nature itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think then it's not optimism, it's a kind of being naive about the world and human beings. And I dislike to call that optimism. Uh,
1: what will be the socioeconomic consequences in the midterm and in the long run from this crisis now, from this coronavirus pandemic? What do you think?
0: It's just speeding up trends, good trends and bad trends. Uh, I, I'm a believer in the potential of technology, so I like some way how it has sped up uh, things, uh, kind of... Uh, being aware of the integration in and <laughs> this planet uh, and then, of course, digitalization, automatization, really making better use because you have two of technologies and processes and some kind of efficiencies that you maybe were wrong so you try to exchange that and try to be more resilient in a sense that has to be sped up so there are things I like about it speeding up and then of course bad trends that are sped up as well most importantly polarization within society, problems of trust and certain geopolitical trends as well Yeah, which are maybe not the best for Europe in general but then. not I think it's usually better to have something that's inevitable and bad to come as soon as possible and quicker than just like pushing it always in the future. And we have the spiraling, of course, of monetary policy, which is becoming more and more absurd by the minute. uh, And that's not such a bad thing. So I think sometimes it's better to accelerate something (laughs) because you could have like a Japanese way of decades of just nothing really fundamentally changes so I, I i like but of course that that's a question if you're fairly young dynamic optimistic in the long run then you'd rather say yeah get over with it <laughs> let's go to something more constructive
1: what would you recommend to people to do now uh, what what's the best way to um tackle this situation now and for the future
0: yeah, I think one of the worst reactions is now that you're somehow, you reduce the dynamics even more in Austria. For example, most people took it as a kind of Corona holidays, uh, which means, okay, everything stops. So I got to stop. And that's the worst way to react something like that. You should really, you need to increase your. Sp- beat a little bit if you realize that you've been surprised by events that just you need to ask yourself okay why am i surprised what's going on why didn't i learn why uh, wasn't there enough innovation why do we depend so much on crucial insights coming from outside i mean austria with the history and then of course being such a wealthy place with so many scientists being funded on a fairly high level it's distorting how little really profound impact and inside their wars. So if you look at paper cited, which I think is not a good metric, but it's in place of another metric and so on, you see that it's not really the part where it happens uh, anymore. And uh, uh, so people are really in a way spoiled in that they. Don't really have to be innovative and productive anymore. Uh, and that's the worst reaction. So the better reaction, of course, is to see that as an invitation to learn. To see it really as a challenge and say, wow, okay, there was something different of, about the world than I expected. What does it mean? What's true about it? What's wrong about it? Uh, and Yeah. Try to learn, try to innovate, uh, be pushed a little bit. uh, And then, of course, on an individual level, once you start asking the question, what should I do? I think it's a, yeah, wow, it's fairly late that you're asking that question. Oh, should I think about money? Should I think about investment? Should I think about my retirement? Most people don't. So if you now start asking, I always say, wow, it's fairly late. Uh, Of course, always when there's a correction on the markets, people are really interested in, (laughs) in getting advice and what to do now. And then usually I say, yeah, it's too late, but it's good, better earlier than later. It's good that you're asking. I can save you, you've already potentially, if you have stocks, you're a minority, you potentially sold them when you really had, were afraid. So now you lost maybe 40 or 30% of your nominal value of your investments. And if you don't have stocks, you don't seem to care. But then let's look at how you really will provide for your old age. Uh, and that, of course, depends if you're part of the boomer generation, which will go to re- retirement within the next 10, 15 years, and there'll be a shock uh, then. And the earlier you start thinking about those demographic changes, dynamics, dynamics, uh, economic dynamics geopolitical dynamics and so on which means you take an active interest in the world you don't, don't just assume that everything will stay the same and it's great that it stays the same because it's the peak of everything and that's a bad sign so getting to life again that I think <laughs> would be a good invitation of the pandemic like that
1: yeah so if you're young and listening to this podcast do what Rahim says if you're old do it too <laughs> yes
0: oh you're never too old i mean that's one of the great things about technological process that's really uh, until very late uh, in, in your life you can be active and productive and change something i mean here at the Scholarium, our mix of students is very odd because we have very young and very old people and uh it's really uh, not the feeling that they have less to inquire about and contribute to the world. Uh, no, it's the opposite usually.
1: Mm, mm, great. So, I know you've uh, written a lot of books. Um, is a new one coming?
0: Yes, there are always. Okay. Which one is the next <laughs> one? one? Will be, Do you? It'll be uh, in German okay. again. I mean, almost every book starts in German. Then if there's interest, maybe it'll be translated and it'll be called Europe in intensive care <laughs> <laughs> or Europe at the intensive care unit somewhere like that so it really really treats how what it means for the future of Europe what we can learn from what's happening in 2020 how people have reacted how they should have reacted and trying I'll try to end with a positive note and see I mean what's what's still in there for the West and yeah yeah great and what we can learn
1: I will look into it thank you very much rahim where can people find and follow your work
0: scholarium.at that's the website yes yes i have a twitter handle Mm -hmm. as well scholarium underscore at
1: okay so that's the best place to get in contact with you great thank you very much and i hope i see you soon again and we can talk again thank you thanks that's it for today. If you like my show, please share it with your friends and hit the subscribe button in your podcast player now. Thanks to my sponsors who make it possible that I can produce the show localbitcoins.com, Shift Crypto with the Bitbox 02, and Coinfinity with their card wallet. Music. Start with yes, delicate beats. Idea, content, and production. Yours truly, Anita Porsche.